Hey folks, my name is Donovan James. I'm hosting a podcast called The Endless In Between, based off my book of the same name. While I was reflecting upon the themes and stories, I wondered how they would intersect with the artists, creatives, and healers that I've admired for so long. Listen as I explore their experiences and everything in between. I hope you enjoy. Hey folks, today's guest is Margaret Marion. She is a licensed clinical social worker and certified alcohol and substance abuse counselor. She provides trauma-informed, narrative-based, identity-affirming therapy for individuals in groups. She is bilingual in Spanish and serves mostly black and brown teens and young adults. I was so excited when she said yes to appearing on today's episode. I was so struck by her insight, by her wisdom, and by the love that she has for serving her own communities. And it was just so nice to have this conversation with her. I hope that y'all enjoy it. Welcome. Thank you for creating and holding space with me today. I'm so happy that you were here. Um, I would love for you to tell us your story. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm super happy to be here and definitely grateful that we can hold space together. My person's name is Margaret. I am a cis woman, het haru spirit, and social worker, storyteller, dancer, shapeshifter, cat lover, and poet. I'm mentee, mentor, daughter of my mama, and so many mamas and aunties with a deep sense of belonging and responsibility to all my sister cousins. I have a large chosen family and I learn best in community. I home on the west side of Detroit and on the south side of Chicago and in Los Girasoles de la Republica Dominicana and in black skin, black like mahogany. I smell good sometimes y'all and I'm kind. And yes, I'm a bilingual licensed clinical social worker and certified alcohol and drug counselor in Chicago. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing. <laughs> I'm so excited for this. Um, so you and I had actually met at uh, at like a another conference, but at one of those li- little workshop days, mm-hmm. and I was immediately so captivated by your energy and your spirit, and I think we just like got along super well that day yeah. and I'm so happy that we stayed connected and I know because of the time constraint that we had um during that time that we couldn't fully 
talk as much. So I'm so happy that you're here. And in saying that, um, as someone that is going through their training as a therapist, you're you are a licensed therapist and I'm curious like was this a profession that you felt called to or is it something that you fell in in into mm-hmm. yeah I, re- I do remember when we first met and I remember being immediately struck by your kindness and I think that we really gravitated towards each other that day because we were sitting in a training <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know it might have been two or three days even um and we just really clicked and I think you had just got to the city maybe you had just got mm-hmm. to the city and had just started school and so um I'm glad that we exchanged information and kept in touch during this time and who knew all this would happen so who yeah. knew for dedicating yourself to a grad program right now um I couldn't imagine but yeah. I'll, answer, I'll answer your question so um, I entered into social work school without a concept or a particular calling in quotes to be a therapist, especially in the sense of um, individual sits on your couch kind of way. I, was, I wasn't thinking of it in that way. But the issues of systemic and racial oppression, questions of identity, culture, and history, and community, all these were my interests when I chose to become a social worker. The therapist part came much later as the way capitalism has set this whole thing up and the privatization of mental health, it seems to me like private practice has been propelled forward as the most desirable version of what success should look like after graduate school. It, I feel like when we're talking to our peers and in school, I just, it just seemed as though that was where all of the attention was flowing is that you should aspire to be a licensed therapist. And in retrospect, that to me feels very narrow. That's a very narrow way to um, practice, especially in the way that it's set up right now. The individual comes, sits on a couch, the revolving door of client after client after client. Um, and so I can go on a whole down rabbit hole about that. So to answer your question, <clears throat> I was not, I didn't set out to become a licensed therapist. I set out to be a social worker. Um, I feel as though I'm a social worker by passion and I'm a therapist by craft. Uh, but my main intention is to try in every way that I can um, to to put myself in the like under the wheel, like to be a cog, you know, to kind of stop some shit from driving itself over. Yeah. And therapy's a, therapy's one tool for making that happen. It's just one of the tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there? a personal experience or experience of others that that made you want to get into the social work field? Yeah, um, and we, I think we find that many social workers have had their own experiences of hurt and harm or of healing or of care. And then out of that place, we become social workers. We're people, people, you know, and we have real lived experiences that inform our work. I could tell you a whole long list of these things, but one of one of the stories that really stands out to me is um, that so I was a foster child, and my mother was herself a foster child. So I am three generations of, and, and also I have a youth in care. I, I know we don't use the word foster child anymore, but 
I am a youth in care. My mother was a youth in care and I have in my care another youth. And so I have three generations of um, kind of youth in care displaced families. And that experience overall has really kind of informed how I see change mm. and what I find to be most valuable about wellness and health, about families being together and having the tools, resources to be together in healthy ways mm -hmm. versus all of the pressures that cause and harm us and recruit us into hurting each other. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I would say that was probably the, the dominant through line of my life. Definitely, I feel myself carrying a torch. I'll tell you one little short story, which yes. is that um, my mother, my biological mother's foster mother, her name was Margaret, and she uh, lived in Detroit in the 40s and 50s or so with her husband, her and her husband. Um, they did not have any biological children. They had a household full of children that they had adopted or were fostering and caring for. And um, word on the street is that my grandmother, Margaret, was like tight, you know, fingers crossed tight with um, a, many activists in the city and many artists. And she was kind of in that in crowd and that her and they would always tell me Rosa Parks. Whether or not it was actually Rosa Parks is besides the point. But they would always tell me that her and Rosa Parks would get a big yellow school bus. They would rent a big yellow school bus in the summertime on the hottest days in summertime Detroit. They would get a big yellow school bus and pick up all the neighborhood kids and drive them to Belle Isle, which is our version of maybe Pier, but less commercial. It literally is just an island with, you know, beautiful, um, you know, grass and swings and shit. Wow. And she would take all the kids to Belle Isle and just oh put, God. load them all up on the bus. And so I was told that story when I was younger. That was a story that I was always told about Margaret and my namesake. And that made me feel, even from young, very much so connected to community and to um, people taking care of each other, even when we don't necessarily have to or, you know, there's just idea of interdependence that is really central to me. And I've always found that story to be a blessing and a, and a guidance in my work as a social worker, you know, mm. that what I have is yours and, you know, that, that interdependence is really key to me. I love that. And so much of what you said resonated with my own experience with my family. Um, like, my grandparents technically are not my biological grandparents. Uh, they were uh, white folks. And my mom was actually adopted from, from um, Mexico when wow. she was two years old. Um, and a lot of my tias and aunts also were were either adopted and 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 or foster kids as well. Wow. So I just I just really I I, I don't even have the words right now. Like yeah. I just 
I just thank you for your story and like just the power of like, I often think for myself, like, would I even exist without mm -hmm. that love and care that someone like just even had that amount of love and care, right? Of like, I want to create a space and, and also a place for people to live and thrive and I think especially as I become an adult, I'm like, there's no way that I would probably even exist if 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 it weren't for my grandparents and all they did. Yes. Oh, that's really beautiful. And um yeah, I just I think we have to kind of carry a torch. I think there's a saying that is that I'm remembering from someone who I was also in a training with, not too far away from how you and I met. And she was from Nigeria and she shared this saying of like, I am who I am through others. You know, we, you are who you are through your relationship with others. I'm butchering it, but it's something along those lines. And I bring it up because it is because our grandparents' experiences and choices that truly shaped how we are see ourselves now and why we're doing this work. Mm. And I pull from that history and I pull from that self-knowledge in these times when there are so many pressures to be a businesswoman, be a private practitioner, be a this, be a that, be so many things, be anything other than who you are. And so I definitely lean heavily on my grandmother Margaret's stories about, look, child, look here now. <laughs> Get your hand up on this bus. <laughs> Unless, you know. It doesn't have to be so formal or so official all the time. And I think we can definitely get carried away with what it's supposed to look like. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. So a lot of your work focuses on young adults and young professionals that are healing from experiences of, of um, trauma and seeking towards building a better future. Um, what drew you towards this population of folks and how did you become involved working with, with a trauma? Yes, so the trauma part is unavoidable. We live it, um, we feel it every day and we do our best to heal together through it. I understand like, I feel like it's my responsibility to learn as much as possible about it and to train myself to be able to act in the part of someone else's healing process and just to be a part of it. Um, and I feel like that's a craft and a training skill set that I've been attaining over many years. The young people part, working with young adults was a natural extension of my very first job back in college. So at the time I had got this job working at the youth center, Gary Comer, in Greater Grand Crossing, we call it a pocket town. I had just moved to Chicago from Detroit and I began to work there part-time as a youth development team member. I live right down the street from the center and I still do. And so the staff, the family, the kids there, we were all super tight. And I started off working with third and fourth graders. And by the time I finished college and grad school, the kids had grown up, we, we grew up together. You know, they were younger. Um, and as, they, as I got older, they did too. So I was mentor and big sister for a long time. And my first job after grad school was at a high school. It was a very natural transition. 
um, to work with high school students. And I've been working with, you know, young adults ever since. It kind of happened the same way. Then my my high school students went on to college and I was still mentor and big sister and therapist, you know? And so, wow. um, yeah, that's how I kind of have begun to work with more young adults now, college age, early college transition, um, transitioning to adulthood, that population that's pretty much stayed with that. I have worked with little kids again, like I've tried to work with third graders again. <sighs> I feel like I've kind of grown out of that kind of patience. <laughs> I have grown out of the patience of <laughs> like I am also 10 years older at this point <laughs> but I love working with young people um and I and I think part of the reason why I really love working with young people is it kind of goes back to this question we were just asking about how much identity and history is important to us and our sense of well-being and teenagers and young adults are all about identity. They're all about trying to figure out who they are and what they and what this world means. Um, they're forging ways. They're like really taking a stand for what they believe in. And um, that to me just feels like it is foundational for what mm. is to come next. Mm. So I think that's part of why I feel pretty much at home working with teens and young adults. Mm. I guess like, as a follow-up and we may touch on this more later but I'm curious like your thoughts of how like with COVID like we're all experiencing this as a as a, a trauma and like in your opinion like for the folks that we serve but also for ourselves like what do you think the future of therapy and care will look like post-COVID? Yeah, so, I mean, for one, I think it's just more accessible. I think therapy in a traditional sense has, has literally put people back on their own couches versus coming and getting on a therapist's couch somewhere. You have therapy from your own couch. And so I think um, it's helpful for people who are either immobile entirely or are highly mobile. So I think that's, I think that's probably um, the biggest change that I'm seeing happening. I'm a little bit concerned with this growing commodity of therapy. Mm. Um, I've hinted towards that earlier, but I think with apps like better help and um there's some like talk space and stuff i think the idea of it makes sense that people would have mental health professionals at their fingertips it sound it's a tricky thing so this is what i'm saying so first i think the way that those programs organizations are running it has become a a, a service another service could be bought so it's been there's some shit going on there um I'm not sure if it's even entirely ethical the way that those programs are being run. Mm. And on the other hand, I think that just this idea that there's like a stranger at my fingertips that I call and talk to things with, and it's there's not a continuity of relationship in that way. Mm. Mm. Boundaries are really blurred. You can just be texting your therapist at any time of the day. That's like a professional friend to me, you know? And in that case, how are we supporting people's capacities to 
to form and maintain better relationships with people in their own real actual life, like that are, that are right in front of them. You know, how are we helping people mend and build and sustain those relationships versus replacing them with like an electronic, you know, quickly text this therapist or just kind of get online and have this very uh, isolated container for every single thing. And then I guess you're supposed to live all live out the rest of your life in this picture perfect way. And then you just kind of contain all the shit into the computer. I don't know. I think something about compartmentalizing it like that feels like it could be harmful later on down the road. If it is not, if it's not attended to, you know, I'm not saying that it's, don't hear me saying that it's all bad. I don't, I don't think it's all bad. I think it's really, really good, especially when I think about certain individuals who I know would not get therapy if they couldn't just click on a button and talk to a therapist. Mm. So, you know, there's some pros and some cons and, and I, I don't know what the numbers look like. I don't know what the facts say or what the evidence say, or if there's any research that's already come out on that. I don't know what, what the numbers are looking like, but it's just kind of my preliminary ideas of what could possibly be coming down the pike or you know, what could happen from here. Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of good points. You were talking about how folks that are working for those corporations, right? Like BetterHelp, all those folks, like the amount of workload that they have. Right. Um, and like you said, there's no boundaries. So what does that look like for the, for the client and for the therapist? And like, it's not sustainable. And I think the one thing that you hit on perfectly that in grad school and I'm sure for you as well as like it's always like something that's like top of mind is like the ther the therapeutic relationship is key like mm -hmm. if you can't build upon that then then you'll in a sense fail is the word that comes to mind but like that's that's what it it will be what, some consequences right yeah. that, that won't come without a consequence yeah other thing that I think post coronavirus with the field of mental health is that um, there was stuff going on, which has been going on with police violence and murdering of black bodies, black trans bodies, black bodies, men, women, everyone um, have been persistently harassed, harmed and killed by police for many, many years. Coronavirus made everything stop and people had to look at it. And people mm -hmm. suddenly didn't have no job to go to and so we was all out in them streets, you know? So it was a perfect storm. And I think the way that this perfect storm has impacted mental health is that the words, the, the buzzwords have changed. In the last decade, trauma was the buzzword. Everything was trauma, trauma focused, trauma focused this, trauma focused that, trauma informed this. Every training that you looked at was about trauma. Now the buzzword in the, you know, the thing that everybody is doing is anti-racist practice, um, decolonizing mental health, this and that. It, it's this is what we're all about. So I think going into this next decade, there will be more folks seeking out education on that, which is a good thing. And I, I mean, I think we all have these kind of guiding foci and guiding topics. So I don't mean to minimize when I say buzzword, I don't mean to say um, that those things were important or that they would just kind of be thrown around willy-nilly because I think there it means that people really are actually paying attention to these issues and 
great, great numbers of people in mass are seeking training, understanding, conversation, and places to commune around these issues. So I do think post-coronavirus anti-racist practice and decolonizing social work has emerged as a main foci in mental health. Thank you for sharing that. And that that intersects with the next session that I had is like entering the counseling field, it's often hard to see myself uh, represented among my peers um, in terms of your own experiences and your opinion. Uh, why is there a lack of Black folks within the mental health field? Um, and how can we expand out to reach Black folks? Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of speculations that I have for this, so I will try to be brief. But number one, <laughs> when we think about the history of social work and mental health and its trajectory in legitimizing itself as a profession and as an organized public service, it was created by mostly white housewives of wealthy white men. And they discussed doing social work, social service at Sunday tea party, okay? Mm -hmm. So this field, I think it still has the allure for work that kind white folks can do. Kind mm -hmm. white folks, here's a way to help. Here's what you can do. But they don't necessarily need to, right? Black folks on the other hand, we've been taking care of ourselves all along. You know, and what what it would be called, you know, what would be called mental health or psychology, I think for many black folks, is really about spirit, spirituality, religion, upbringing, you know, child rearing. So for many black folks, church every Sunday is the therapy, you know, or sitting on somebody's porch. My grandmother's sitting on her porch right now, <laughs> you know, folks come by and sit on her chair, you know, for a while. So I think there's, there is actually not a lack of black healers, black people doing work to mend themselves and each other. This whole idea of like therapist, the formal way, you know, mm -hmm. I think is new. And I also suspect that this idea that there's a field of mental health is also relatively new, okay? Mm. It's just now there's a different set of loops and hoops that you have to jump through in order to be able to call this work your job. Mm. Um, so with that being said, I think what we could do to help Black folks who are interested in this work have a more easier route is I think we need to start to value other ways of knowing. Mm. Higher education is super important, but let's be honest, it's too expensive. Yeah, yeah. You're going through all these loans, they're taking advantage. It's un abuso, like this, it's really um, an abuse of the people, the high tuitions and heavy loans. And then you do all of that just to graduate as a social worker and you be trying to fight for your 40K position, you know? And then you're expected to work from your heart and not have to be paid for it. Like I signed an oath to poverty because I'm a social worker. Anyways, I think that, that that's connected to why some black folks are like, so why would I do that? I've already been working for this country for free. <laughs> forever mm -hmm. so yeah i just think it's i think it's a whole situation so one of the things that to bring more people in might be to build connections with students of psychology and social work at the bachelor's level like get have connections between you know black therapists and clinicians psychologists with black students at the bachelor's level with 
more internships, more mentorships, and kind of have help Black students get a foundation of healing. And I'm just going to go ahead and say radical healing before we move on to graduate school and become further inundated with the kinds of things that would make us be widgets mm. and, and help us make us feel alienated from other Black folks. Because once we get into these institutions, especially PWIs, you know, we don't only we don't we don't was there, and then tell them, teaching us all kinds of, you know, evidence-based practices that might not be the most culturally relevant. So I think that we have to reconnect with our students, with our Black students, much sooner before they get to graduate school and they're invested in master's level education, and almost having to start from scratch. Mm. And then tangent with that oh yeah for sure um there's always been a lack of healthcare access for black and people of color um you offer instagram discussions which i think is a great way to have those open honest conversations around mental health what inspired you to uh, start these chats with folks on an online platform yeah so i wasn't the biggest fan of ig until uh much late in the game i did not make the switch quick <laughs> but um on ig last year i did a series called uepo and uepo means presence in swahili i believe that when we foster a sense of awareness and presence within our own black bodies that we actively resist against those intra-psychic forces that seek to remove us from those bodies so what i mean is that you know, we have been trained for commercial commercialism, for sugar, for a thousand and nine vices, for other people's profit. Mm. When we tune into our bodies and listen, we can experience some freedom from all the ways we are pulled by this social program. So you can call it mindfulness if that's more accessible. But again, that's a relatively new word and it has been co-opted and detached from its cultural and ethnic origin. So I created these live WEPO sessions on IG upon invitation to collaborate with the Pomoja Challenge. That's a community resilience initiative between my friend Rashawn Ward, shout out to Red Clay Dance, and to her friend, Dr. Jewel Young over at UIC. So the Pomoja Challenge offers Saturday dance classes, community circles, health monitoring, and my WEPO sessions all for free all throughout this year, throughout the pandemic. Um, we're actually going to be moving my Uepo sessions from IG, so I think we'll be doing those in a private space and people can um, sign up through the Pomoja Challenge at redclaydance.com and access those. We're going to be moving them private. There may be um, like shorter things that are recorded online for people to view, but I think people might appreciate having um, kind of a more intimate space where we can do this together on Zoom and as things get nicer here in the city, for example, if we're having our Saturday dance class at the park spread out, we can still do some, some mindfulness afterwards or some uepo afterwards, holding space together and being present. So yeah, I think that's that's kind of where that how that came about, but it was not, I can tell you I'm not the person to put myself in the front of things. I am not the most, let me have a thousand and nine IG followers. <laughs> I, I, I am not the most, social media savvy, neither do I aspire to be honestly. Like I very begrudgingly mm. <laughs> get to the social media. I, I was of that camp of people who were just deleting all of my accounts <laughs> and mm -hmm. was just gonna be like, send me an email if you want to stay connected. <laughs> that was That's definitely, real. 
that was me until my friend Brashawn called me and was like, we're gonna do the Pomoja challenge. I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, that sounds so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And I know we had touched upon this a little bit earlier. Um, but maybe we can go more in depth about it or like uh, what are some misconceptions that folks have about the, um, like the, about the therapy or counseling? So there's a whole bunch of misconceptions about therapy and counseling. Uh, there's a really long list, so I would love to hear kind of what you would add to this list. But yeah. I think one of the misconceptions is that social workers and therapists know what the problem is. We can identify what the problem is. We know what it is exactly. And so a lot of times people come in like, what's wrong with me? And I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> you know? So uh, like, we're just supposed to have the answers. We are supposed to see the person or whatever the situation, we're supposed to be able to look directly and find the problem and extricate it out and know what the cure is and know how to heal it and know how to fix it. Um, I, we do not have magic wands. We are also real human, actual people with, whole as partners and children and families too, you know? So I think that's one of the misconceptions is that it is, um, that we kind of know, have this infinite knowledge of psychology facts. Mm. I do not have the DSM memorized. Neither do I aspire to have the DSM memorized. <laughs> and so, yeah, no, it's just not, that's just not gonna work out. What are some misconceptions that you've heard so far? Yeah, I think within my family, um, it's been like, oh, like, like, oh, like you're you're gonna do amazing work, but you're not gonna live, like, but like you're not gonna be able to live, and I'm always just like, in my head, I'm just like, but people are quote unquote living in these high paying jobs, but they're not actually living. Right. Like, like I always really think of it as like, if I can do something that that is getting back to my communities that I know is necessary, like I'm all for that. And but and and I think you I think you had said something earlier of like just like it's so fucked up how like within these fields unless we come from a family of generational wealth or wealth of any kind that like it's like do I take this job that's going to pay me x amount or do I go after like what I'm passionate about or really want and it's just like but why can't I think we should be able to have it all and yes and and I think we've made it a job to we have made in our society that is, just call it what it is, in our capitalist white supremacist society, we have made healing a commodity. Like we mm. have made it something that is a job or a service that you buy. Mm. So now we have to choose between what feels like a real calling and then we have to ask ourselves, well, how do I make a business out of this? I'm not a business person. I'm a therapist or, you know, or whatever, right? Like the only way. And so a lot of times, you know, people who are therapists or social workers, 
either have partners who make really who make a decent amount so that they can not have to worry about making so much you know what I mean like there's something mm-hmm. to offset it but if you're just like out here on your own if you don't have no children maybe you can maybe you can make your, your 40k work right like mm-hmm. but then I mean there's a whole other conversation when we talk about the distribution of wealth in this country and across the world so that's a whole other thing but <laughs> um I think we have to be careful um, what you were saying earlier, Donovan, about choosing work that feels most in line with who we are and what we care about, and then choosing work that will pay us. Mm-hmm. We have to be careful with the, well, I'll just take a job that doesn't pay me well because I care so much. That is exactly and precisely how we become martyrs and how we um, just kind of get lost in the system and, and in fact become agents of the system like we can be co-opted in that way I think we have mm-hmm. to be very careful with that because we are expected to just care so much that we do for free mm-hmm. I've heard before you may have heard this like I, I said I, I took a vow to be a social worker I didn't take a vow to poverty mm-hmm. um, so yeah I think we have to really be careful because if not we will be working 14, 15 hours a day available at all times of the day mm. or whatever little money, but we'll be able to go to sleep at night feeling like we good people. Well, mm. I'm a good person now. Like, no, that's that's some ego shit that's not actually about serving and helping. So we have to be careful about that for sure. Mm. Mm. I think some other things that come up for me is, so my my field uh or my specialization i should say is like couple and family counseling Mm -hmm. and so often when i'm talking to people that don't recognize that there are different fields and different sectors Mm -hmm. they're like oh so you're a social worker (laughs) and it's like (laughs) no and then trying to like explain to people it's like watching them try to put math math together Mm -hmm. in their heads and it's just like dang like how can I make this so that you'll understand and and understand right um so I think that's something that's come up for me a lot knowing that marriage and family therapists uh the field is relatively small um so I know this is probably going to come up a lot throughout my entire career I think I just need to discover I don't think discovers the like I think I need to find the language that'll translate yeah and I and I think you'll find it I certainly don't find it I make up new words all the time (laughs) I make up new words all the time I I, at one point I was called I was saying I'm a theractivist I'm a therapist activist I'm a theractivist or I was like, that doesn't sound right. I don't like that word. Okay, I'll find another one. <laughs> you know. I love that. I had a friend, um, this word healer has kept has continued to come up and my friend who I love so much and it's been a really important part of my life. She said, You're a healer, Margaret, you're a healer. And I said, Healer, is that a label I wanna wear? Do I wanna say I'm a healer? Like, oh, that sounds really like responsible. I don't wanna <laughs> <laughs> I don't know to be a healer. But so yeah, I don't know. I think We'll, we'll find the words. They change. They're flexible. I I find myself in relationships with so many people. And um, 
Sometimes feeling is as much of a legitimate way of knowing than thinking or having all the right words. I like that. So how do you center yourself while doing this necessary and often difficult work? I'm a dancer. I love dancing. I dance Kisomba, which is um, a dance from Angola, Africa. It's, and I dance Simba, which is also from near there, dance all over um, Brazil too. I dance salsa and bachata and Afro house and Afro beats. Ooh. So yeah, I just, whatever, whenever, if I can dance, I'm supposed to music on, I feel the ground beneath my feet, literally feel the ground beneath my feet. Um, and I just kind of move with the vibrations in that way. So I love it. Poetry grounds me. I have two books of poetry. Don't ask me what the names of them are because I see the cover in my head and I can't tell you the name. Magical Negro by Morgan Parker is one of them. And then I have Maya Angelou's, uh, a compilation of Maya Angelou's work. These are in the chop drawer at my desk at work. Like to my mm -hmm. left hand side, as soon as you open up the drawer before you grab a pen, there's books of poetry there. And so very often throughout the day, um, I will ground myself in a poem, in a few words. Meditation is important and vital. I got tons of friends and family who are always loving up on me all the time. And then pleasure, thanks to um, the uses of the erratic Audre Lorde talks about pleasure and how important it is to our work, to our passion work to feel good doing it, like to literally feel pleasurable doing it. Mm. Um, and then that takes me to Adrienne Marie Brown's work, pleasure activism which also emphasizes how things should be feeling juicy, right? So I think mm. I have figured out, um, I've been focusing on making things happen slow and juicy and just letting it feel good. And so I think pleasure mm. is, at least in this past year, has been a really important centerpiece for me sticking with this kind of work. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. What advice would you give to aspiring therapists, um, especially those that are POC? Know thyself. Know mm. thyself. It is so easy for us to become recruited into other people's um, ideas and values about who we should be. So know thyself. Do the work of excavating your own history, your own social local position, um, and really take the time to, to kind of excavate that. Ask questions, you know, sit down and talk to Grandma Manem. And, you know, you really, I think we really have to know ourselves first because when we go into these educational institutions and we go into these first workplaces, there's a long list of expectations. They even tell you what the values are. These are the things that are going to be valuable to you in this way. You know I mean? mm -hmm. the, the organization and the mission has its core values that then are supposed to become yours. And this is how you will be evaluated. And this is how you will come to feel if you're successful or not. And da 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 right? Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, as, as young and impressionable recent graduates, um, like you just want to do a good job, right? Like you, you don't really know, you're trying to figure it out. And so mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing that we can be doing 
um, is to know thyself first. Spend that time with yourself and with your people and figure out what's important to you and have that be central as you move through a variety of different interviews, work jobs, places, schools, and career decisions and all that kind of stuff. Thank you. How can folks connect with you after today's show? I do feel the best way. Send me a um, message or just, yeah, send me a message on IG or just follow me there. I um, am not in any place regularly. I'm doing work with Second Story, which is Chicago Storytelling Collective. And um, you can kind of find me there too, off and on, mostly monthly. But I would say IG is the best way to keep track of me. Thank you so much. Um, and before we close, when have you experienced joy within the past week? I love this question. I think it's the best question to end off. Um, um, thank you for asking this question. So this past week, well, um, in the morning, we have been having such good sun. Yes, um, yes. When I wake up and literally like the sun is hitting my skin, it's just so beautiful. I just sit and I just admire myself a little while. It just feels so good, you know? Um, sitting on the couch cuddling with my cat, silently, no music playing. I'm just hearing the purring. You know, when a cat purrs, it just reminds you that connection is more than enough, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I had a virtual house party with my for my best friend's birthday last night, DJ L. Lokari, shout out. So we was dancing in our socks in the living room and that felt so good. And then lastly, there's this comedian named Luan James. I don't know if you heard of him. Actually, I'm not sure if he's Puerto Rican or Dominican, but he is hilarious. And he has all these videos about code switching. And so he did one. He was like, do not get patras, mi amor. Do not master to the future. <laughs> so let's not, let's not get too caught up on the past. Let's keep mm. our eyes set on the future. Let's continue to radically imagine what a new future might look like. Mm-hmm. I think that's a wonderful way to close us out. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to be here and share space with us. I'm so happy that we were able to reconnect. It was so lovely. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey folks, thanks for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at Endless in Between underscore podcast and on Twitter at John O. James 4. Until next time, bye!